0: Hello and welcome to the Good Time Sports Club. I'm OJ Borge.
1: And I'm Raya Hubble. Uh, now, on
0: this week's show, I catch you up with two time Olympic gold medalist and Tour de France winner, Gouraine
1: Thomas. And I learn all about the wonderful world of football.
0: And I also speak to the only female tetraplegic race driver in the world, Natalie McGlory. But first, Ray, I have to ask you how was your sporting week?
1: It was good. I have to be honest, it wasn't particularly uh, intensive as I've only really done one training session this week, Uh, but I finally got myself back on the bike. um, And after a few weeks of injury, I'm, I'm actually feeling pretty good. How was your sporting week?
0: My sporting week was okay. I feel like I have slightly overtrained actually, which is not a bad thing because I'm desperately trying to lose weight. Because I lost four pounds, went on holiday, put on six. <laughs> um, so I've done a whole load of riding. I actually got back in the climbing gym, which has been a while because uh, I love a bit of climbing. Wow! Uh, I tr- well, I try and train just for the zombie apocalypse. So the things that I do are for when the world ends, which, you know, let's be honest about it, there's signs everywhere.
1: It's closed, So yeah. I know
0: I can I can outrun and outclimb zombies. <laughs> I'm going to stop axe throwing in a couple of weeks. But i tell you what I did do. i tell you what I did do. I managed to get my wife after five years of badgering her. Yeah. Today, earlier yeah. on today before we recorded this, I got to go on a ride with me. 45k you did.
1: Wow. Do you know, I think it is epic because I truly believe that couples who train together stay together. It's For me, it's it's a monumental thing. And if you love the bike, get her on it quick.
0: I've been trying for ages. She's been she's been on the turbo. I've been trying to get to do Zwift. She hasn't gone for that yet. But um, I've been trying to get her outside on the road for years. She finally cracked and we did a 45K ride. Lovely weather in Manchester, bizarrely. And do you know what? She moaned the entire world. <laughs> She moaned about it. it, was hard, the hills were too big, it was too hard. Oh my God, this headwind. Moaned all the way around. She got back. I was like, do you enjoy it? She went, no. So <laughs> I went for a shower, came down. She was online on Rafa looking at Kit. I was like, you loved it. You loved it.
1: Oh, so, my god, um, amazing. Yeah. Congratulations, mate. That's to a big feat.
0: It is. It's lovely. I'm very excited about it. <laughs> uh, right then, shall we get into the news, Raya?
1: Let's do it, OJ. Well, after hanging his gloves up 11 years ago, Oscar De La Hoya is the latest boxing legend to announce a return to the rings. But the former pound for pound king isn't planning an exhibition fight like Mike Tyson or Roy Jones Jr. He's planning a full comeback. The 1992 Olympic gold medalist has already been called out by former world champion, Amir Khan.
0: Wow, okay, that'd be interesting. I mean, the thing is though, with Oscar De La Hoya, he has been offering people out for a while. There was an MMA fighter who got very close that they were going to fight. I mean, it all got very unseemly towards the end. But yeah, interesting. When, does, about it when, when does, does it not?
1: When does it with not with boxing?
0: <laughs> in MotoGP, Valentino Rossi has described the huge accident in last weekend's Austrian Grand Prix as terrifying. If you've seen it, oh my word. Valentino mm-hmm. and his Yamaha teammates, Maverick Vinales, uh, barely missed the flying bikes of Franco Morbidelli. That is a name, Morbidelli. If you're going to watch out for dying, that's the name. Uh, and Johan Zarco in the incident, remarkably no riders were seriously injured in the crash and if you've seen the video and it has done the rounds online it's one of those ones it's like a fail blog it's like how did someone survive this The, the way it bounces over them is insane. I watched it once and I refuse to ever watch it again.
1: Yeah, and speaking of crashes, we had some big crashes in the world of cycling this week, Um, but Team INEOS has shocked the cycling world by leaving two of their biggest stars out of the Tour de France team. Chris Froome and Grant Thomas both having winners. um, Five of the last seven yellow journeys has missed out. On the british team selection, just one british rider for their tour squad for the first time since their creation as team sky back in 2010 that is a change up of the team for sure oj
0: it is a watermark moment it's an evolution of the team it's a changing of the guard we're going to chat about it um after this interview because Well, we're going to talk about the fact they've been dropped and what this means for cycling. And also, as Ray, you mentioned the crashes in the Dauphiné because it was very dodgy. Lots of crashes Mm have been going on. But first, let's hear from a man who's been Olympic champion. He's won the Tour de France. He's one of the best cyclists on the planet. Now, we spoke to him last week. It was after a brutal stage two of the Dauphiné uh, on the top of Col de Port. At this point, as you're about to hear, the question wasn't if he was going to go to the Tour de France, but if he was going to be the leader. So let's get into it. Now, I didn't want to start by asking him about lockdown. I knew every interview would have been about that he's done so far. So the only thing I could think of, believe me, I wrapped my brain, was to ask him how many of those old school white frame Oakleys did he have?
2: Uh I've got a few pairs in uh I reckon four. So uh, it's you know, it's the supply is starting to shrink, but I'm always on the lookout. So any keen fans wanna swap, uh yeah, contact me on Twitter. But yeah, I've got I've got four, so I think I should be alright for this season and next. But uh depends on how long I keep going for, doesn't it really? So I'll have to, I'll retire as soon as Could I'm you... out though. I can't race without <laughs> them.
0: Is that how you time your career? As soon as you run out of those sunglasses, that's it. Time to call it a day. Yeah, it makes sense. No. Yeah, um, and that's it. That's my non-lockdown question done. Um, let's get into it. Uh, how do you feel to be back racing again in this new normal, whatever the new normal is? How does it feel?
2: Yeah, good. It's uh, mostly, it's obviously different here, and um, no offense to journalists, but it makes our life a little easier. Um, you know, normally in the tour, it's just chaos. Um, or any race, you know, you get off the team bus and there's guys that want to speak to you, thrusting you know a microphone in your face, and then there's fans everywhere. And but now it's just really strange. You get off the bus and there's nobody there. You ride to the start. The, the sign on is real quick and easy. Um, you know, and there's obviously all the face coverings and stuff. And but then the actual racing is just like normal. So that's that's good. And that's it was a bit of a shock to the system, though. Um, you know, riding around on your own for you know, three four months, and then suddenly you're in a peloton of 200 guys all fighting for position, and so yeah, that was a bit of a shock. But it's nice to be back on the bike though, just with the team and in this environment again, because it's kind of what you don't realise how much we're sort of ingrained in that really, and how much we are used to it and like doing so. And that's what we train for as well. at The end of the day, isn't it? You train to race, so it's nice to be back back racing. I heard Bradley
0: Wiggins talking about it on his podcast, and he was saying there's two types of races. Those who can train on their own? they can hit their numbers, they can give us something to do, and those who have to race to get into shape,
2: which one are you? um I'm kind of a bit of both really i kinda I can train well and sort of you know go through that process, but at the same time, I need to have like a goal to do it. you know, I can't just ride around and train just for the sake of it um and then once I started racing, I think a bit like an old car now. It would take a while to sort of get the engine going and sort of really warm up. Um, we're starting to feel better now. I've had five days of racing, um, three more to go, and then we have the Tour. So, um, But yeah, it, it has been tough. It felt like, you know, April, May, kind of just going through the motions because there was no real end in sight. But now, obviously, there is, and, and we're racing again, so that's all good. But um, it has been tough for everyone. And I think it's just... Uh, The main thing now, the main difference you kind of see is everyone is just so keen. Um, And with such little racing before the Tour, it's going to be an interesting Tour because I think uh, anything could happen, really.
0: Well, you say anything could happen. When this goes out, I think we'll be just about a week or up to a week before the Tour de France. Um, Normally, you know who's in form, you know who's doing what, you know who's won what. We're talking to you on the second stage of the Dauphiné. Um, so, for you and for Ineos, I guess you don't know who to watch, you don't know who to mark or who's going to be dangerous there.
2: Yeah, you kind of have you know, the usual suspects, but then after today was the, the first sort of big mountain day and obviously Jumbo stand out, They're, they've they had a super start to the season um, or season 2.0, but um, the rest, yeah, like you say, it's, it's a bit up in the air really and we just need to... The main thing is staying concentrated on ourselves, try and get to the Tour in the best shape we can, and then not not end up just racing one team, you know, because it would be easy to focus on Jumbo. And then, you know, there's obviously another sort of 10 guys who can realistically podium. So, um, yeah, it's just keeping that in mind as well, really.
0: So will we see your name on the start list of the Tour de France? Is that nailed down? Is that something that's going to happen?
2: It uh, should be, all being well, but... Um, yeah, as as we all know in sport, don't take anything for granted. So, um, but yeah, the preparation's been going okay. The start, I started in Tour de Land, um, which was a three day race, and I had a bit of a stinker. Really, like I was a bit tired going into it, and it was super hot. It was like, yeah, thirty six, thirty eight degrees, and um, yeah, being from Cardiff, I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of that. So uh, I suffered a bit there, but I'm starting to find my legs now, and it's all being well. A steep Stay on that sort of trajectory and uh, go to the tour and yeah, be good to go. Um,
0: like your win in 2018, you go in as not an outright favourite. Um, does that suit you? Does that suit you personally?
2: Yeah, I think just going in under the radar is easier. You know, you have to do less interviews, You there's less people talking about you. You know, you just leave that to the other guys, really, you know, jumbo and then, you know, Pino, the French guy, and obviously Egan in our team. And if I can just do less and just sort of go about my business, it's, uh, that works for me, yeah. Um, I rewatched the
0: moment post-stage 20 just before this interview um, where you were told you'd just won the tour. I got emotional watching it. Have you watched that back since?
2: I've seen it a few times, yeah. Um, well, yeah, it still sort of makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up, really. And like that last 500 metres, I'll always remember just being on the radio to Nico, who was our DS, and uh, yeah, just asking him, "Oh, Nico, have I won the tour? And he's like, yeah, yeah, gee, you won the tour. And boy, just that that feeling will will always stay with me. Yeah, it was in, incredible. Um, where have you kept... Have you got that yellow jersey that you
0: wore that day? Have you kept it somewhere?
2: I don't have that one because it's a skin suit, but I do have the yellow jersey that I wore, that I won on Alpe and also the jersey... Um, that I wore on Champs-Élysées. So I framed the one that I wore on the Champs-Élysées and I've kept the one with the numbers still on on, on Arbe d'Oise as well. So um, yeah, that's nice to have for sure. Um, now you're going to be doing,
0: as far as I know, a significant amount of the classics for the first time in a few years. What gets your juices flowing
2: more? Is it a Grand Tour or is it the brutality of one of those big one-day races? Um, they're totally different. Like, a one-day like classic race is just so intense and it's just all on that one day and it's just real just raw racing whereas you know grand tours there's a lot more calculated you know it's day after day you know not spending too much and um so that's the the appealing thing with the one day is just you just go you just race and you just maybe sometimes do some something stupid and attack you know far out or whatever or they're just really good races and um so that's the biggest difference i find really and you know with the tour you just always from november it's always in the back of your mind you're always thinking about the tour and every race in the build up to it you know it, you're going through a similar process and it's it's not monotonous or anything but it is really sort of calculated and whereas yeah the classics are more like an art really rather than a science and um but i enjoy both of them when you when you're going well, you're in the front and you're racing for the win, both are great.
0: Um, there is a day they're calling the Super Sunday, October 25th. As a fan, as a fan, what would you watch? You've got Paris-Roubaix, uh, both the men's and the new women's race. You've got Giro d'Italia, the final stage. You've got the queen stage of the welter of the Malay. As a fan, which
2: one of those would you watch? I think Paris-Roubaix. Yeah, I think uh, it's what I grew up watching. Um so, yeah. You won it as a junior. Do you want that on your Palmares? Oh, I wouldn't turn it down. That's for sure. But, uh, yeah, yeah. It's um out of, out of Flanders, which is the week before. It's like the Belgian, the big Belgian race. And then you've got Paris-Roubaix. I probably prefer Flanders because I think it's suited to me a little bit better. There's like punchy climbs, whereas, you know, Roubaix is just pan flat. But, yeah, it's something special about it. You know, you win big sort of cobblestone. Um, so, yeah. I wouldn't turn either down though, to be fair. Uh
0: we started this interview talking about when you run out of sunglasses, that might be the time where you hang up uh hang up your bib shorts. Um have you thought what you want to do post-career? I mean, maybe you could do some sort of cooking show. I saw you tweeted out your half-rice, half chips, all carbs meal the other night. Half pasta half rice meal.
2: Yeah, I don't know about a cooking show. Um Yeah, I'm not the best cook, but that 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 tweet was a bit uh There was obviously some sort of sauce and like a meat as well, but yeah, I didn't make it look the nice, nicest, but um, I don't know. I'd love to stay in the sport, but yeah, to be honest, I haven't thought about it too much yet, really. Hopefully it's a long way off. Yeah.
0: I mean, I I think everyone who follows, follows not just cycling, but follows sports, wants you to be in the sport as long as possible. It's just, I guess when you've started to achieve, do you start looking at what's afterwards? And Plus, through lockdown with a new baby, spending more time, maybe even seeing what life would be like when racing finishes. Did that give you a taste of it?
2: Yeah, to be fair, it did, actually. Um, and to be honest, it is something I've started thinking about, just like what, I'm, or what I could actually do. Um, but yeah, hopefully I still have another four years or so to sort of figure that out. But um, yeah, it's something I've always been mindful of, you know, trying to set yourself up so... You know, we actually got something to go into, but at the same time, I'd love to do an Ironman. So I've said it before, and I think uh, I'd like to go into that and do that for a while, for a bit. Hello.
0: You still? Yeah, sorry, mate. I think we just keep losing you. That's all. Where, where about, are you? Where did the stage finish
2: today? Oh, well, mate, I have no idea. <laughs> we basically get on the bus, we ride our bikes, race our bikes, get back on the bus, and different hotels, and that's it. It's strange. Like if I looked at a map, I would no, I have no idea where Alpe d'Huez is or Tourmalay or... Well, I know they're in the Alps and Pyrenees. Other than that, clueless.
0: Best look for the tour. Can't wait to watch it. Of, of all the tours you've raced in, how where does this one rate on the excitement level? Considering you've not raced that much this year and you are going into it
2: with a, with a whole load of unknowns. Yeah, I think the unknowns make it less exciting, to be honest, because you kind of... I'm a bit just like, you're always second-guessing yourself. Like, as an athlete, you're always a bit sort of, well, I find a little insecure sometimes. You're always double-guessing and assessing how your legs are feeling, this and that. So it's strange to have all that racing to give you that confidence going into it. But yeah, it'd be great to just hopefully do it, hopefully get to Paris, because who knows in this day and age, eh? But yeah, hopefully we get to Paris and all's good. And uh, well, it'd be lovely to have another yellow jersey in the team.
3: It surprised
0: me you say that you are you don't have full confidence in yourself, that you are unsure. I, I, you've always looked like one of the most confident racers on a bike that I've ever seen, somebody who knows that they're always just going to achieve.
2: Yeah, like, it's – maybe the confidence is, is the wrong word, but I don't know. No, it, you're just sort of, like – you're just constantly assessing, basically. Um, once you're in the race and you're going, then it's different, but the beforehand um, – especially with the lack of racing, you're always just a bit like, whoa, how am I going to be, you know, et cetera. But um, yeah, as soon as you get going though, it's all good. It's just that perfection thing, isn't it? We're always searching for that perfection.
0: Aren't we all, aren't we all? Um, mate, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Can't wait for the tour. And I can't wait for Super Sunday as well. Do you know if you're going to do Paris-Roubaix? Or
2: is that just too far off for you to know? I think I'm down for it at the moment. I'm definitely not down for the Giro or the Walter, so. I'm guessing I'll
0: be there. Mate, I'm going to have about 10 screens on that day. <laughs> One of them. Try and watch it on a phone, a laptop, and an iPad all at the same time. Um, G-Man, thank you very much. Pleasure. Cheers, guys. Now the, the thing is, though, I think I think it shocked everyone, and I ended up on Five Live a couple of nights ago, and they were asking me the question, was it a slight, what is a slight by Dave Brailsford, So, Dave, to leave Geraint Thomas and Chris Froome at home? What are your thoughts on it, Raya? <sighs>
1: i mean i don't know it's one of the biggest funded teams out there and at the at the end of the last tour you had what five gc riders that are all capable of taking the yellow jersey if that's the case and you have been as successful as those two guys have Maybe you do give the, the lead ride to the younger, fresher blood and you do lead those guys out and I'm not saying that's right, but it, in my mind, that's how it's been played
0: You have to look at Ineos, it's been very much like Manchester United when Alex Ferguson was there you keep the people yeah. doing the job where they can do it. As soon as they can't, you move on to someone else. Now, coming out of lockdown, I think Chris Froome, it was always it was always understood that it was going to be difficult for him to find his form. He's had, what, three yeah. days racing in two years? No one knew. Yeah. But coming out, no one's had any days racing. And you would have thought somebody with the background of Geraint Thomas, who's come through the British Cycling Programme, he'd have been given a load of numbers, and you hit these numbers in training, and then you come out of it, and you go to the Dauphiné, and you're good. And a lot of people were saying, oh, maybe Froome and Geraint, and... Egan Bernal, to that point, maybe they're not going so well at the Dauphiné because they've got training in the legs. Because Ineos like to to race them stressed beforehand to see how they deal with it. I honestly believe the problem is they came in a little cold. Now, you can usually start the Tour de France. We know Ineos have done this before. You can start the Tour de France not in form and you ride yourself into form. It's such a long race that if you go in in firing in the first week, by the time you get to the, the third week, you've burnt yourself out. You look at that, you look at the parkours of the Tour de France this year. You could you could easily be four, five minutes down by the time you've got out of the fourth day. And I just think Dave Brailsford looked at it and went, you're not form. you're not going. Because he's yeah. asked, you know, he, he I mean, Mark Payne's with us here, um, who produces the show. You've seen, you heard the interview, you were there when he did it. There was no mention of him going to do the Giro because he wanted to do Paris-Roubaix.
4: Yeah, and exactly. And the thing is, you know, you mentioned Dave Brailsford. Dave Brailsford is famously one that doesn't, uh stand on sentiment you know this is a very similar position to uh 2013 we had Bradley Wiggins who just won Britain's first ever tour he came in on the back of you know an Olympic wave and everybody just expected him to go to the tour even if it was just as a support for Chris Froome and he was he was moved on to the Giro quietly this time we've got an even more complicated situation they've got the defending tour champ in Egan Bernal who's been very successful and then you've also got Richard Carapaz, who won the Giro last year, who they bought in specifically to ride, you know, a grand tour. He was going to do the Giro. that Him and Geraint have basically swapped over. And, and you know, now they've also got Pavel Sivakov, who's been on incredible form. Who was,
0: who was who was flying at Dauphiné. The difference, the difference with it all, the difference I would say is, after Bradley Wiggins won the tour and then went and won that gold medal at the Olympics, I think his head wasn't in the game. I, you know, I, I think, yes, I'm going to return the favour, but I think... I think that was an easy decision. This one, I mean, there's no favors. It surprises me with Froome going to Israel startup mm-hmm. nation. Maybe it's almost like, well, we've got to look at the future anyway. I thought that I took Garant Thomas. I must admit, it just goes. Maybe we haven't seen his numbers. I mean, you know, you're a coach, Raya. Do you think he just wasn't firing because he just wasn't getting? I, I,
1: I like you said, no one has seen their numbers, but given his heritage, given his success rate, I, I, my personal view is it, it's it's probably down to politics more than fitness um, and and you and I will i th- i guess agree to disagree there because i think you think there's no form um and i i can't see someone like g not being able to ride himself into form in the tour de france which is what he's done time and time again
0: but he would not be a leader but That's, he would not be he would he would be going simply as a dynasty right. because the thing is if you look at those first few stages you could be tens of minutes down you could see INEOS who let's be honest about it the whole point of the INEOS team is to win yeah. the Tour de France it's not yeah. to win the Giro it's not to win the Vuelta it's not to win day you know day long races or any of the monuments it's to win the Tour de France hence why they've won whatever it is five out of the last yeah. seven so you know to go with a team that isn't firing I just think I think it's a sad thing and it makes it a very non-British race now totally right. historically the Tour de France has never really had British riders in it up until what 10 years ago when Bradley Wiggins won it, we weren't anywhere close. I'm um, saying we, the royal <laughs> we. So the only British riders that we think are going right now are Luke Rowe yep. at Ineos, um, Adam Yates at Mitchelton Scott, um, and then potentially also Connor Swift, Mark Cavendish. Do you think Cavendish is going to go? Do you think he's going to go? Because I've heard people saying that it's you know he's, a, he's on the long list and you shouldn't take yeah, him. I, I really know.
4: want him to go. <laughs> I want him to go. I want them
0: all to go. Of course, I want them to go. It's interest for us.
1: Um, I, I mean, I love his his longevity in the sport, what he's accomplished, seeing him still keen to ride. I mean, it would be great to see him go, um, especially along along the other riders who are there. That I'm named. I mean, he's certainly one of the more experienced and and, and well known of, of of the list. You know.
0: Mm. Here's the question for both of you: Yes or no? Does Geraint Thomas leave Ineos at the end of the yes. year?
4: No. Oh.
0: I I I think no as really? well. Really. I think no as well. I think I think he's on to a good thing. I think he will see every every rider who's left ineos who was part of the ineos setup has never gone on to bigger things. There's never look look at Richie Port.
4: Yeah, I was going to say the Richie Port situation is interesting, and also you put this another way, and I think this is the way that Geraint will see it. He'll be disappointed he's not racing the classics. he be disappointed he's not going to the tour. But he wins the Giro, the opportunity that he had a few years back and he crashed out when he was in form. Gets that extra week's break, goes there, and then he's just got to win the world to complete the set. And that, for a rider, is almost as important as winning another title at the Giro. Sorry,
0: yeah, at the, um, tour.
1: that's a pretty fair ac- analogy, actually, thinking about it.
0: Hey, that's what we think. But what do you think? Always like to know your thoughts on it. Maybe you disagree. Maybe you vehemently disagree and want to shout at us using all caps. We'll take it. Uh, Let us know via your social media of choice. The hashtag GTSC will get your thoughts to us. Now, last week in the blazing sun, I sat down to talk to the disability and accessibility president of the FIA, Natalie McGloin, to chat about how she found herself behind the wheel, her thoughts on the future of disability motorsport, and and even then cycling was on our minds. Uh, Natalie, as I said, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, How is your day going?
5: Uh, Yeah, good. Um, Just come back from a bike ride. I had to uh, go to the bike shop and it was uh, a lot longer than I anticipated. So thank you for bearing with me.
0: It's all right. That is the way. I mean, if we were on video right now, you'd say I'm sat here in soggy Lycra. It is warm out there.
5: Yeah, that's why I'm not on video. (laughs)
0: Um, your story is an inspirational one for people who don't know about your background if you don't mind telling it just tell me about how your background where you got to your racing driver career now and the work you do with the fi just talk me through your story if you can
5: so um i broke my neck in a car crash on the road when i was 16 um no one's fault just one of those things wrong place wrong time um and after that i went back to school um went to uni and was introduced to a sport called wheelchair rugby and it was actually wheelchair rugby that got me into racing so i had quite a passion for for cars just through kind of my uni years and uh, i met someone at wheelchair rugby who also had a passion for cars who introduced me to track days and just things got out of hand very quickly and before i knew it six years after i'd started doing track days i uh, I bought myself a race car and entered myself into the Porsche club championship. So, uh, that was, um, that was kind of the the short version of how I got into racing. Um, and then shortly after I started racing, I started um, public speaking and, um, I was invited to speak at the FIA international conference in Geneva in 2017. And Jean-Claude heard me speak. And shortly after that, he offered me the position of, an, uh, of President of the newly formed Disability and Accessibility Commission. And that all happened very quickly as well. So uh, that's how I got to those kind of points, if you like, in a nutshell. It's uh, an
0: interesting journey. Um, it's an interesting journey that if a car is something that ended up making you disabled, you became tetraplegic, to then pursue a career in motorsport, that is an in, that's an interesting journey
5: yeah um I, I i don't associate them with the same thing so people often ask me you know how can you race cars given that that's how you broke your neck and you know when i broke my neck i didn't have a driving license i was a passenger so i it, I, I guess in my mind because i wasn't in control of the car um i don't i don't really see the kind of risk of being injured in the road as anything to do with motorsports so um yeah it's not it's not an obvious choice but I'm I'm always driven by passion and cars for me um were kind of a freedom after my injury um in that once I got my driving license I could go wherever I wanted to go without anyone's help so um they became my kind of gateway to kind of developing on my journey I guess after my my injury to getting more confidence and more independence And then the passion for kind of the speed developed through just a love of of kind of fast cars and introduction to track days. And I just, I fell in love with, with the fact that I could do something at the same time and in the same way as able-bodied people on a racetrack. And, you know, that coupled with the adrenaline and kind of fulfilling that kind of need was, was something that drove the passion to want to go racing and, you know, all of the sacrifice and all of the hard work that, that that takes, that I just, I just loved it. And if I love something, I'll, I'll give it my everything. So uh, that's how that developed.
2: You
0: talk about the passion. What are the emotions like every time you sit behind the wheel of a race car?
5: Uh, massively mixed. So obviously nervous. Anyone who says that they are not nervous at the start of a race is not telling the truth. Um, and the the kind of the adrenaline is something that you have to control Um, it's something that I crave but adrenaline is all that kind of getting up for a race is needed but you know used in the wrong way it can lead to you making rash decisions on the racetrack so moderating that is massively important so I think control is a massive factor in racing just control over your car control over your your senses control of your ability to process information um there's a lot of stuff going on in your head and you know if you can keep a cool head by just focusing on your your kind of race and making sure that you do the best you can do but at the same time still having that that drive to want to win it's it's a fine line and um I describe racing as, as the thing that I love about it is, is having control on the edge. So when you're in a corner, trying to get the most out of the, the speed but also being on the edge of the grip, so you know that you're the right side of that line because the wrong side of that line will either push you wide or force you into a crash, but so being the right side of it but just enough so that you're, you're getting the maximum is is what I love about racing.
4: I
0: mean, the thing is that you've not just raced on the road, you've raced rally as well, haven't you?
5: Yeah, so I, I got my rally licence last year in, in February, and um, that was something that I'd always wanted to do. Um, my, my partner and I set up a charity where we give um, disabled drivers the opportunity to experience track driving, and we progressed into rally driving because, A, I, I knew that I couldn't do it without an organisation being available, um, and, and B, just because it was a natural progression of what we were doing. But that allowed me to, to get into rallying and to get my, my licence. And, yeah, it's, it's a completely different discipline to racing. Um, I find it less stressful as a, as a day, because you don't have that big build up to kind of the lights going out and being on the grid with everyone it's it's a more tiring day because your your kind of um energy levels are at 90 percent all, all day whereas racing if you've got one race you're at 100 percent for maybe you know an hour of the day or if, if it's two races for two hours of the day but I just the discipline of rally that you don't, you haven't got the opportunity to practice is something that I love, and it's it's something that I do with my partner as well, who's uh, won a couple of uh, British Championships um, in rally, and he was he was um, kind enough to be my co-driver for my first two rallies, which was um, was good. Could have been very bad, but it was good.
0: <laughs> um, I mean, rallying's a lot about listening, isn't it? I mean, I mean, obviously in a relationship you have to listen. How easy is that when someone's calling out corners and, and brows of hills coming up? How easy is that to do in a relationship as well as being in the front seat of a car?
5: Um, it's more challenging in a relationship. Um, I'd say Andrew in and my, um, my two first rallies was uh, instructor slash coach because he knew what I needed to do. So there was, there was more instruction than there would have been had it been a professional co-driver or a, a, you know, a, a semi-professional tow driver. Um, but yeah, there there are a couple of, of heated moments, let's say, um, mainly when I got things wrong. Um, but it was good and I think that it was really, it was really nice that I had that experience from him because, you know, it was something that I, I jumped into quite quickly and having, a rally driver as your co-driver i think is really valuable for your first couple of rallies so um yeah it, it was we were a bit nervous that you know there might be a few too many arguments but there are a couple but an acceptable amount and um, yeah it was, it was great we loved it
0: um what is the future then with the fia uh, and disability motor racing because there have been some high profile cases with billy monger and alex zanardi yep. what is the future what's the fia looking to do
5: so we, we want to make um, motorsport more accessible whilst not compromising on safety. For me and, you know, the vision of the commission, um, the future for me is that we, we make such progress with motorsport that disabled kids start to look at Formula One and believe that that could be them. Because at the moment, you know, disabled kids think that life is so limiting as to what they're their opportunity is. And if they could see a, sport, a mainstream sport like motorsport and not a disabled sport, a, a, you know, a mixed ability sport, because there's no, there's no different class for disabled drivers. We all compete together. I think if, if I could get a child either born with a disability or, or, you know, a youngly acquired disability to look at motorsport and to look at Formula One and say, Mummy or Daddy, that's what I want to be when I'm older, because they genuinely believe so that's true because of what the work that we've done, my commission will have been a success and that will be the legacy of it. And that's desperately what I want to achieve.
0: So if somebody's listening to this right now, they have a disability or they know, or they have a child who has a disability, what do they do? Where do they go first?
5: So um, the best the best place for um, kids in motorsport is karting. Um, your local kart um Centres will often have hand controls or different adaptations that, um, uh, that kids could use if they have different needs. Um, and, and to get, and it's something that they can do with their friends as well. It's, you know, it's not a separate um, wheelchair basketball or wheelchair rugby where you can only play with disabled people. You can go with your friends and have a go. And if, if your local casting centre doesn't have um, hand controls, there, they'll be able to point you in the direction of one that does. And if you're really serious about getting into this and you've got, um, you know, some some backing behind you, um, reach out to me on Twitter or any of my social channels and I will give you the advice you need on where to go next.
0: And obviously you drive with hand controls. What adaptations do you have on your race car?
5: So the adaptations in my, in my Cayman race car are, they're really straightforward actually. So I'm paralyzed from the chest down. I don't have any movement or sensation below my chest. And my finger function is also impaired because I broke a bone in my neck. So I haven't got full grip capacity in my hands. Um, So I have a lever that is fitted to the brake and accelerator pedal, which um, is kind of a rod system, which extends to kind of sit next to the right hand side of the steering wheel and is a handle that basically I push forward to accelerate and I push down, sorry, I push forward to brake and I push down to accelerate. And the mechanism of me pushing forward actually depresses the brake pedal. And the mechanism of me pushing down depresses the accelerator pedal. So there's no, there are no electronics involved. It's literally an extension of the pedals which means that the car can be raced by able-bodied people. And my partner and I actually co-drive the car together. So in some races, I'll, I'll start and he finishes. I drive with my hands, he drives with his feet. And the only other, it's not an adaptation to the car because it's, it's the nature of the car I've chosen to drive. is that It's a PDK, which is Porsche's double clutch transmission. So what I actually do is I leave the car in drive. So I don't change any gears. I let the car change the gears for me, leave it in automatic mode, which, because of my lack of finger dexterity, manipulating a paddle whilst holding onto the wheel would be very difficult. I know other people who have got gear change um, options in their cars who race and are cashroplegics, but um, because the gearbox is so good, it it drives so well as it is in auto that we haven't felt the need to, to adapt that um and aside from that it's a it's a standard racing car like anyone else's on the grid just with the hand controls fitted oh and i've had the steering lightened so because i race on slicks um the steering's quite heavy and driving with one hand um i after a year and a half of driving just with the standard steering i just i decided to get it lightened and it, it transformed my racing really so um yeah, they're, they're the, the only things that are, that are done to the car over and above normal race adaptations, which is, which is great.
0: You mentioned earlier you'd like more disabled drivers in sport. You mentioned Robert Kubica. Um, how impressed have you been with what he's been able to achieve with a largely immobile hand in an F1 car?
5: What Robert Kubica does in an F1 car or did last year and continues to do with all of his racing is rather remarkable because I, the demands of an F1 car, not only through the loads on the steering wheel, but how many things are going on where you're, you know, you're adjusting the brake bias, you're adjusting so many different buttons for performance and setup of the car as you're, you know, you're going into nuggets and Beckets at Silverstone at 180 miles an hour, and to have a disability where his arm um, is fairly redundant, you know, it's it, there as a propping agent really. Um, what he achieves is is very very impressive, and you know he's massively competitive with it. I, I know the Williams car wasn't wasn't great for him, but that's not the driver. You know, just an unfortunate position that Williams are in last year. Um, I'm hoping that they they make some improvements soon. Um, but yeah, I mean the the things that he's done and the things that a lot of disabled drivers do are are fairly incredible. I mean, Billy, to come back after, you know, a year of uh, having his, his accident that amputated his legs and to finish third in a in a more powerful single cister going from F4 to F3. And then to win um, the PAL GP, I think it was, um, he's, you know, he's one of my idols because his attitude towards everything is just you know if I if I had had someone like Billy to look up to when I was injured at 16 I think I'd have been really lucky because I think he would have motivated me to um to do a lot more a lot sooner um and I think he motivates a lot of of people regardless of disability or age just because of his his outlook and how he's dealt with everything with, with such class um and yeah. A lot, of, a lot of unsung heroes in, in racing who uh, you'll never hear about because they don't want to be considered a disabled racer. They'll just want to be a racing driver and their disability is insignificant to what they do on the track. So um, it's a great sport for that.
1: Thanks, OJ. And now for something completely different on the pod today. We have got a very new sport, certainly a sport I've never heard of. Maybe you have, and we're going to talk foot golf. And to help me find out about this new sport, I have the Neil Shea, president of the Foot Golf Association of Scotland, and Stuart Campbell. Stuart is a Scottish pairs player, and currently, along with his partner, Michael Erdley, are the top in the Scottish rankings as well as the course development officer for the Foot Golf Association of Scotland. Oh my goodness. Hi guys.
6: Hi there. Thanks for having us.
1: How you doing?
6: Yeah, we're great. Thanks. Yeah, really good. Really good.
1: I love new sports. I love when sports come through and things change in the world from traditional to new. Um, And so I got really excited because I used to play golf. And I love it. And then I Googled it and realized there was a football involved, which got me quite strong. So for the sake of everyone who's never heard of this before, tell me what is foot golf and how the heck did it come to be?
6: Okay, so foot golf is obviously a hybrid sport, which has come together of a combination of of golf and football, as it sounds. Um, It's played predominantly on Golf courses, but there are some foot golf only courses now, and it's played with a size five or for junior size four football. Um, Obviously, you play the rules pretty similar to golf. So we play with par threes, fours, fives, um, and obviously into a slightly larger hole than a golf hole. (laughs) 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 Um, And yeah, the rules the rules very similar. But the the great thing about the sport and the reason it's um, taken off and grown at a really quick rate is the accessibility of the sport for everyone. All you need is Uh, to go out into the course of a football no expensive equipment and give the sport a go Uh, and then obviously if you if it's not for you you've not you've not uh, put a lot of money into the sport
1: so you get your football and I guess from the sounds of it you saying it's so accessible there isn't the same golf membership fees and green fees
6: no we tend to have and um, just pay pay to play fees there are some courses foot golf courses now that do have member fees to to keep the cost down throughout the year, but most people can go and have a round from anywhere between ten and fifteen pounds for a round so it 's not it 's not um extortion at all
1: brilliant and it 's so great when you 've got something new. I have terrible. Um, foot hand coordination so I would not even play with you guys until I'd felt like I was almost a professional um, um, but tell me um, how did you get into it how did you start it and how Stuart has competition been for you tell me what your foot golf career has been
3: yeah I started uh, I went up for a, a social round with some friends um, about three years ago now um of course not too far from where I live um and just from my foot golf background being quite competitive uh, quite competitive, um it, it it gripped me right away. I wanted to go back and beat my own score, um, repeatedly. Um so that's how I And then I found um, there was a a club um league, if you will, and um from there it just progressed into uh, tour competitions and then obviously playing for, uh, on the on the Scottish tour and then the national team and stuff like that so it's it's definitely uh, from my point of view it's kind of taken over my life to be honest I I gave up football completely uh just to focus on playing foot golf so no, it's it's, it's, it's uh, very very addictive
1: <laughs> well golf has always had that romanticism right you you go out you get to spend four or five hours on a golf course um football itself is quite the opposite. But being able to combine two of possibly the most famous sports you can possibly imagine and put them together, I, I can imagine you guys have just fallen in love with it and obsessed might be the word you you, you would use to describe it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's um, I think everybody that comes to the sport for the first time has that feeling, they're like, oh, I want to get back out there and do that again. And as you say, golf can take up quite a lot of time. Um, but, I, I mean, if, if me and Neil were playing around, we could easily go round in about an hour, uh, in 18 holes. So um, it's a lot quicker pace-wise. So you do get good value for your money, absolutely.
6: Yeah. The frustration of having a bad round makes you want to play even more again rather than the opposite, which is great.
1: Yeah. I, I remember the days when I was first sort of starting off playing actual golf where I – Often would throw my a little temper tantrum and say I was never playing again. So the thought of being able to uh, play a bit more quickly and have that urge to do it is is very good for me. Um, how do the the leagues work? Is it is it similar to a football league?
6: Yeah, well we we have a bit of both of that actually, which is great. Is again maybe comes from the hybrid of the two sports. We have a, as Stuart mentioned a club league where you're representing your club, um, and those clubs play within a, a league table which works similar. Three points for a win. Uh, one for a draw etc then we also have the individual tour where you're playing for ranking points so depending on your final position from the tournament you collect points which go into a ranking leaderboard that lasts the entire season so it's a bit of both
1: very good now when i introduced you guys on the pod today i noticed that you guys are very proudly with the accents obviously um part of the golf association of scotland listen i'm from canada so i know that not all nations can get along because in canada we try to separate as well the french and the english just don't like each other and i've heard on the grapevine here in england it's the same the scots and the englishmen just want to be separate so why is uk golf and scottish golf separated what happened did you guys have a falling out talk me through the the politics it's uh,
6: to be honest the 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 Long story short of this is um, we just wanted to give the Scottish foot golfers the best chance to, um, rep, you know, to, to develop within the sport and represent their national team without having to travel too much. The previous system meant that our players would have to travel seven, eight hours in the car most weekends to go to tournaments that were predominantly held um, in the lower half of England. Um, obviously the sport is, is relatively new and it's not, fully professionalised, so people aren't uh, winning big amounts of money to be able to go and compete every weekend. So what we wanted to do was give the, the Scottish players, yeah, the chance to compete on tournaments regularly within their home area to then go and represent the Scottish national team if they're playing well.
1: That that suggests to me that even though it's a relatively new sport, it's growing at quite a rate, and you must have some young players coming through the grassroots system.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, on, on the tour, we have a separate section for... Um, Under 16s. Even at club level, we've got an under 12 section as well. Uh, So, we, I mean, obviously, everybody in Scotland loves playing football, so it's just trying to get them over to uh, kicking the ball in a hole rather than the goal. But no, I mean, we've got some really, really good young talent coming through um, at, at the club league level. And that's you, you, they play the tour events as well, which is fantastic. And it's the next step for them. I think one of the young boys is making his Scotland debut this weekend yeah. um, as well against the rest of the world uh, game at, just before the Scottish Open, which is fantastic. Yeah, a beautiful part of a relatively young sport is people
6: that join the sport, you know, from the very beginning can see a really clear pathway yeah. to get into the sort of elite level of the sport which is is really nice for people, and it's quite exciting.
1: Um, talk to me about some of the major tournaments if If I want to start to get into the sport um, either through playing or through spectating, what what events should I be looking up for?
3: Well, we've got to visit the Scottish Open this weekend. Um, so, I mean, that that's a flagship award, if you will um, But, I mean, the, the entry level, as I said, is from Club League And you can come along and watch that Anybody can play Club League, That ranging from under 12s We've got a female section, we've got an over 45 section So uh, anybody can literally play the game, uh, any skill level as well As long as you've got the ability to kick a ball relatively straight that doesn't matter how many strokes, you will put it in the hole at some point So, uh, yeah, anybody can play it
1: so what's next for you? Major tournaments that are going on. Are you, I, I heard on the grapevine that there is an actual World Cup already. I can't believe I've missed this. Um, due to be played in Japan.
6: Yeah, so there's, the, this will actually be the fourth version of the World Cup. The, the last one was uh, two years ago now in Morocco, in Marrakesh, um, where unfortunately, we um, at that point I was representing UK football and we were we were defeated in the final by France and um, so yeah the next one is now was scheduled for this year but for obvious reasons it's had to be rescheduled so it is now rescheduled for next year in Japan Um we are we are hoping to be there in Scotland if possible that's Scotland um, but yeah it's, it's it's due to be the, the back end of next year now in Japan which is very exciting obviously the game's now worldwide um, yeah there's so many different nations playing play within, within the sport. So, yeah, it'd be really exciting to go over there and compete again.
1: Absolutely. Well, we um, wish you all luck to get you qualified and hopefully over to Japan next year, COVID allowing. Last question for you guys. And it, for me, it's one of the most important. Let's talk about attire. What do you wear on a foot golf course?
3: <laughs> Brilliant. So. Uh, our main rule, if you will, we're not allowed to wear football boots. Uh, you may call them cleats over there. Yeah, we're not allowed to wear football boots. We wear AstroTurf trainers, so they're not—they okay. uh, don't, they don't uh, imprint on the ground as much. Um, and then from there, it's football socks, so okay. long socks. Uh, tailored golf shorts yes. so have pockets and belt loops um, and then a polo shirt. Yes. So that's pretty much it. You can be as creative as you like uh, we've seen some of the kits out there um, myself included to be honest uh, quite bright kits. Yeah, Stuart <laughs> likes a, like a colourful <laughs> <white, laughs> I, like, I like a pastel colour to be honest um, Nice, yeah. yes But, <laughs> but no, the more creative the better in my, in my book <laughs> I have I have to be
5: honest it was the most
1: important question me because when i googled foot golf i also clicked on pictures on google and some of the outfits were outrageous which i just absolutely love um guys best of luck for the scottish open this weekend and thank you so much for joining us today
3: thank you very much thank you
0: Stuart and neil there on the good time sports club Well, two things here. First off, I have played foot golf. I did it on my brother's stag do. Yeah, but it was like being back at school again. I couldn't kick the ball far enough. I just couldn't get it close enough. Every time it was really embarrassing. I just I ended up having to toe poke it and I went home with my toenail fell off. Secondly, (laughs) frisbee golf is the best game. Where I live in Manchester, we've got a course, like a free course to go to. I loved it, played it years ago. First time I went to America, loved it, thought it was great. Came back and there's now a course around the corner and me, and a few of my dad mates. We all go on like a Thursday night and play oh. around and drink beer. Don't tell I me. I feel drink beer a as well challenge
1: on coming on.
0: I do. <laughs> uh, and that is it. On those on those words, we are done. If you've been enjoying the Good Time Sports Club, uh, you've probably already subscribed. If you have, then please do review us. Five stars makes Raya so happy. It does indeed. And if indeed. you can, why not tell a friend as well?
1: Also, give us a follow on our social media channels. You can find us on good Time sports club on instagram and twitter thank you so much to all our guests today this week grant thomas natalie mcgoin neil shave and Stuart campbell
0: the good Time sports club is a shock giraffe production it was presented by me oj borge
1: and me raya hubble
0: and we also had the lovely voice of
1: mark payne
4: <laughs> my voice has gone very shrill but that's me
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, he couldn't, he couldn't unmute himself quick enough. The show is produced by Mark Payne with additional production support by James Watkins. Until next week, Raya, goodbye.
5: See you later. Bye. <laughs>